The rest of you, we're going to be in John chapter 1 this morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, we're going to be picking up at verse 43, John chapter 1. So we begin um, a new series. Where's Joel? Joel, hey Joel, the uh, Dropbox has the wrong slides on it. Uh, My computer has it under a just-in-case file. (laughs) Uh, This happens from time to time when you use a technology that is supposed to sync together. um, And we uh, upload things that didn't upload the correct slides. Um, All right, John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. So if you have a Bible, turn there. Or a phone, you could turn, use your devices uh, to turn there. And I will read out loud uh, as you follow along with me. All right, pick it up into verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. All right, in John chapter 1, Jesus is calling disciples to himself. He's collecting uh, those who are going to follow him. He found Philip, who had become one of his disciples, and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, who were brothers who were also disciples of Jesus. Philip found Nathanael and said to Nathanael, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, and you are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. This sends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God Stand forever. All right, Phillips here says to to Nathaniel, when Nathaniel makes his fairly snarky comment about where Jesus is from, Philip responds to him simply, come and see. Come and see who this Jesus is. My my daughter, I have a fairly persistent uh, child, my youngest, but she's also a creative one, and whenever she create something up in her room, she'll call down, I'll be downstairs, and she'll say, Dad, I made this incredible thing. You gotta see it. And I'll say, well, tell me about it. And she'll describe it for just a second. And then she, and I'll be like, oh, that's so great, sweetheart. And then she's like, no, Dad, you have to come up here. You have to come and see it. You have to come and see. You have to experience this thing. You can't understand it until, you, Dad, you fully see what I have created. Well, this is what the Gospels are doing for us. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are beckoning us to come and see Jesus. To come and see Jesus. To encounter him and to experience him personally and on a one-on-one basis. Let me ask you, have you ever had an encounter with Jesus? Have you ever met Jesus? Have you ever come to him as you are, as a doubter, 
or in your grief or skepticism, even in your sin, and experience Jesus interacting and responding to you where you're at through his word. What I want to do in this sermon series is we're going to examine Jesus' personal interactions. When he goes one-on-one, mano-a-mano, with various folks throughout his life in his ministry, we'll see how he addresses those folks. Some people will come to him as skeptics. Some will come as doubters. Some will come as people wrestling with grief or dealing with their own self-righteousness. Or he'll also engage with the powerful. And we'll see in this the different ways in which the gospel writers show us how Jesus personally interacts with these various folks. The way he comes and engages with them. And the gospel writers give these little little bits of information often throughout the text as to how Jesus interacts with them, how he loves them, how he cares for them, and how he woos people to himself. And in all this, in all this, we get to experience an encounter with Jesus. We get to learn about who the character of Jesus, about the character of Jesus and who he is. Are you enthralled by the person and the character of Jesus? Albert Einstein once said this. He said, I'm a Jew, but I am enthralled enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. No man can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. Einstein was not even a follower of Jesus Christ, but he sensed that there was something wondrous in the way this man interacted with people, the way he loved, and he sensed the power of his character flowing off the page. And so as we read and study Jesus' personal interactions with each individual this particular semester, I hope you and I can experience, even might experience what even a non-believer, Einstein, came to wonder, to see the way Jesus loves people, and have an encounter with Jesus yourself. And so this morning, we're going to begin with Nathaniel and how Jesus interacts with him. And it is fitting to begin with Nathaniel because, as we're going to look at and see in just a second here, Nathaniel's problem with Jesus and what keeps him from having an experience with Jesus, encountering Jesus, is that he is cynical. He is cynical. And if you're a person who desires to encounter Jesus and to know him, there are certain things that keep you from his presence. And for many of us in this age, that we live in an age of cynicism, that we are skeptical, that we are doubters, that we kind of look at everything kind of from the side, you give everything the side eye. And what we're going to see here this morning is is the pattern that Jesus is going to see in this interaction with Nathaniel is the same pattern we're going to see played out in Jesus' interaction with people in which they're going to have a particular issue that Jesus is going to interact with. For Nathaniel, it's cynicism. For others, it's grief or skepticism or doubt. And then Jesus is going to move towards them. And then then he's going to finally, he's going to call them to himself. He doesn't move towards us simply to leave us where we're at, but then to beckon us to know him and to follow him. And so let's look this morning at what it looks like to encounter Jesus in this barrier of our cynicism. Nathaniel's problem with Jesus, he's got a problem with Jesus, and it's a personal problem, 
and may, actually it's maybe a prejudicial problem. Philip comes to Nathaniel and he says to him, I found the Messiah. Get excited with me. This is the one we've been looking forward to. And Nathaniel's response is what? What good comes from Nazareth? <laughs> Jesus interacts with people with, from all different angles. And Nathaniel comes to interact with Jesus from a heart of cynicism. And Nathaniel's present problem as he's simply a cynic. Now, what is cynicism? Uh, it's, it's different. It, it goes in the same, it's in the same place as we think of a skeptic. But a skeptic is someone who's, they're asking questions and they're bringing an open mind to their doubt. A cynic has doubts, but also brings their doubts with a sneer. There's a snarl. There's a snobbishness with their doubts. And a skeptic looks suspect at everyone and everything especially things in which other people seem to be passionate or happy about. You ever run into that person? That they are, if, if everybody else around town is excited about something, they're like, no, it can't be that good. Behind every silver lining for a cynic is a cloud. Now, I love cynical wisdom because I'm a fairly cynical person myself. So here's some wisdom, the cynic's wisdom. Here's some one-liners. If you think nobody cares about you, try missing a couple of payments. That's a cynical statement. In fairy tales, the princesses kiss the frogs, and the frogs become the prince. In real life, the princesses kiss princes, and the princes turn into frogs. It's a cynical statement about love, isn't it? For every action, there's an equal and opposite criticism. I love that one. And which is this expectation of life, kind of a glass half empty, pessimistic, Look at life. Now that's funny, but a cynical view of life really isn't actually all that funny because it robs you of hope and joy. You see, cynicism is when we view life through this lens of doubt instead of a lens of hope. That's the biblical word. We're looking and calling it cynicism this morning, but what this is is cynicism is someone who has lost a sense of hopefulness in their life. Cynicism is the undermining of hope and that God has a redemptive work going on in a particular place or in a particular person. And so you begin to expect failure out of people. Many of us believe in the Christian hope of an ultimate redemption, but we breathe the cynical spirit of our age, and in that we miss the very heart of God, and actually we keep him at arm's length. And it's why many of us are joyless in our Christianity. You see, cynicism shuts down curiosity in our relationships. It expects failure, and it prophesies it, and we look for that failure. Cynicism has a, whether conscious or unconscious, has an instinct to observe and critique instead of engaging with others with hope and love. Cynicism is passive. It likes to critique from the sideline, but does not like to get into the battle and engage with hopefulness. And the cynic holds himself with a place of pride, that I have the inside knowledge. I can see through everyone's poor motivations. I have the wisdom and I have the knowledge to know what's really going on here. Now, where does our cynicism come from? Well, some of us are a little bit more bent to it than others. Our personalities are a little bit more, um, uh, we, we, see, we, have, we see clouds and everything. But I think it, for most of us, it comes from our experience of life. That we've interpreted life in view of our disappointments. You see, cynicism's greenhouse is naive optimism. That's why we're such a cynical, cynical people now. 
that we grow up with a Disney World theology that says that we're all going to marry the prince and the princess, and then what happens as you hit junior high is, one, you are not a prince or a princess, and then everybody else around you is rather hellish to begin with. And the very people that you thought you leaned into, that you trusted, they begin to disappoint me and you realize it. Or think about the college student or the young adult who begins to see that there's something wrong and flawed with the world and comes across an institution that promises to bring the justice that they long to see. But what they find after a couple of years of being involved in that institution is that it is just as bad as the rest of the world around them. They find the same prejudices and the same injustices involved in that institution and begin to get disappointed. And what that happens is we begin to translate and interpret our disappointments in such a way that we harden ourselves to hope. And we harden ourselves to protect ourselves. My father always described himself, and my father was a pastor and a preacher, but this might describe some things in his life, as he took great pride in being what he called a defensive pessimist. That he always looked at life expecting the worst. In the hopes that when the worst didn't happen, he was happy. But yet, if you go through life with this perspective, what is that going to do to you? It's going to suck your joy. I heard one person describe becoming cynical this way. They said, I have built up scar tissue around my frustrations. I just don't want to expose myself anymore. And that's what defensive pessimism does, where we have been hurt by our expectations and hopes being disappointed, and therefore we will shield ourselves from being hurt by expecting less. And our expectation, our cynicism can also be born by our anecdotal prejudices. That's what Nathaniel's issue is here. Nazareth, a king, a Messiah coming from Nazareth? You see, Nathaniel is from Bethsaida, which is a middle-class town. It's a suburban community. There's Jerusalem, that's where the big city people live. And so the middle class people like to look up at at the big city people and we get to disdain them. But then the middle class people that live in the suburbs also like to look down at the poor people, the rednecks out in the village and say, ah, ha, ha, look at those fools. And our prejudices, by our anecdotal evidences, the experiences, minor experiences that we've had with various groups of people can also cause us to close our minds to what God could be doing in those places. But what results in our life because of our cynicism? Well, we create a numbness and a joylessness in our life. One woman named Kathy, who by her own confessions, in a, in a book I, I read by her, confessed this, it's easier for me to feel skepticism in nothing than to feel deep passion. Cynicism takes root and feels more real than truth. But this leads to a feeling that I can't find joy in things anymore, like I'm too aware of reality to trust or hope. Cynicism leads to this passivity that simply looks at the world and says, what's the point? So your friend comes to you and says, I found the Messiah. Yeah, he's from Nazareth. What's the point? What's the point? And the result for Nathaniel is his cynicism and skepticism is a barrier to following Jesus. His cynicism closed off the possibility of redeemer for himself and for his nation and for this world. And so what has caused you to be cynical? Even for those of you that walk with Jesus, but some of you have actually take, have begun to have a fairly cynical approach to your walk with Jesus. You see, some of you are like Lieutenant Dan. Remember Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump? He got no legs. He got no legs. 
ain't got no legs. Remember, he lost his leg in battle and he lashes out at God. And it starts, I love where this conversation he has with Forrest. And he says this, Forrest, have you found Jesus yet? Forrest responds, I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him, sir. Lieutenant Dan says, well, that's what all these people down at the VA talk about. Jesus this and Jesus that. Have I found Jesus yet? They even had brought a priest to talk to me. He said that God is listening, and if I found Jesus, I would get to walk beside him in the kingdom of heaven. Ha! Did you hear what I said? Walk beside him in the kingdom of heaven. Well, they can kiss my crippled rear end, is what he sort of said. God is listening. What a crock. Let me ask you this. Some of you open your Bible, and you expect to hear nothing. And some of you pray, and yet you expect God not to answer. And some of you bring your doubts to God, and you expect no answer. Have you grown cynical in your relationship to the Lord? Have you been there and done that? You've been through the Christian life. You've been to the conferences, and you've read the books. And now you're just like, let's just muddle through. Because my expectations for what God is going to do are so low. Nathaniel's a cynic. Are you a cynic? Well, how does Jesus engage? The whole point of this is we want to, this series is we want to look and see how does Jesus engage with people where they're at. So this morning I want you to see the Jesus' pursuit of Nathaniel. How does Jesus pursue Nathaniel? How does he go after this cynic? Well, we pick up in verse 47. Here's what it says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. What you're going to find very often about Jesus is he is so often very gentle. And he so often, he he backdoors it with people. In which he stings people, but they don't even realize it until they walk away. Or he sneaks up on them. And then there's other times in which Jesus comes right at them. And this is one of those times in which he comes right at them. Jesus' point here is that Nathanael is a certain kind of Israelite, right? an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Nathanael is a simple man, he's saying. He, he means what he says, and he says what he means. Nathanael ain't playing games. He's seen the world. He knows what it's like. He sees through it all, and he calls it out. There ain't no beating around the bush for Nathanael. He was calling it like he saw it, and that's what Jesus points out. He says, you are this kind of guy. And Nathanael's response is what? How do you know me? Or how do you know me? I'm not sure how he says it. I don't know what his tone of voice is. We don't know what, if he is anxious. Was he creeped out by this? Like, whoa, how do you know me? Was it sarcastic and caustic? How do you know me as if to say, you don't know anything about me? Or could it have been a tone of wonder? Oh my, how do you know me? The text doesn't necessarily tell us. It just says, how do you know me? We don't know, but we can have a better sense of what Jesus is emphasizing, his approach and direction, and why, how he's going after Nathaniel and his cynicism, and how he's going to try to break through that barrier and that wall. Jesus then answered him in verse 48 and says this, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I saw you. The point Jesus is trying to get across to Nathaniel is that I see you. And I see you right where you're at. In the Bible, the language of seeing also refers to knowing. I I see behind you. I see behind the hard exterior. 
What did Jesus see of Nathanael under the tree? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. There's something very vague about this passage. We don't know exactly what he saw, but the question how, of how we met, met how, what Jesus he wants to get across here is this, is Nathanael, I see you. It's used three times in the passage. The exact phrase is used. I saw you. What's he trying to get across here? Well, I'm going to use a, an example from my own life. Sometimes people see you before you see them. And I had the great delight of the, the, the most profound and special relationship in my life. This is how it began. Because when I showed up at Reformed Theological Seminary, there was a girl there who had already been there for a year. And I was just trying to exist and figure out how to get to my classes and find by my books. But someone saw me. And she became my wife. And she moved towards me. I didn't see Meredith first. She saw me first. And she won't deny it. She invited me to her house for a party. That's, what I, that's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. I saw you when you weren't looking for me. I saw you. This is the kind of thing that Jeremiah 1 talks about. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and I set you apart. This is the kind of knowing and seeing that Ephesians chapter 1 says. Where this word in the Bible, you know, the word predestination is actually in the Bible. That he, there's something about before the foundation of the world, what that means is he knew you. That he looked out and he saw you and he placed his affection upon you. Your resistance, your barriers, your walls, Nathaniel, here's the problem. I've always, always been there. I've always seen you. I've always known who you are. And now what do you specifically see of Nathaniel under the tree, again, we don't know. It's very vague. It could have been a hidden virtue he saw out of Nathaniel. He could have seen him praying or making a vow or feeding a hurting person or making a resolve to forgive someone who had deeply wounded him. Jesus says, I saw you. It could have been a hidden pain. Perhaps under the fig tree was a place in which Nathaniel was abused. Perhaps it was there that he cried out to God. He could have felt pain there. He may have buried a child under a fig tree. It could have been hidden sins. That it was under that fig tree that he berated his own child. Or he committed a crime. Or maybe that's where he passed out drunk. Or he solicited a prostitute. Or he committed blasphemy. We don't know. But Jesus wants him to know that wherever you have been, and the disappointments and the sorrows and the joys, I've been there. And I know. I know. You can come to me with this barrier and this veneer and this veil of a hard exterior of cynicism and criticism and pessimism, but I know you, Nathaniel. And this disarms Nathaniel's defenses very quickly. In fact, verse 49, how does Nathaniel respond? Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now that is quite a conversion. I mean, right? He's walking to see Jesus going, I ain't going to see nothing good. This is just some hillbilly from, from Nazareth. He's a redneck. He's probably che- you know, chewing and spitting. All right? Ain't nothing good going to come from this guy to one sentence. Ah, oh, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. What in the world? This is quite a switch. And you know what? Jesus is not actually that excited about this conversion story. If you'll notice, Jesus actually seems to rebuke Nathaniel. 
or at least throw some, some, throw some uh, cold water on his profound proclamation. Nathaniel says, you're the son of God. You're the savior, the king of Israel. And Jesus says, oh, oh, first you were skeptical about me, and now you're ready to adopt me? You're ready to swallow who I am, hook, line, and sinker? But I actually haven't begun to tell you and show you who I really am. And here's what Jesus says about the cynics, to the cynics. He says this, listen, you want to slow play this? You should slow play this. Because what I'm after is not after quick conversions. I am not after you having an emotional experience. I'm not after you having some quick place of naive resolve. What I'm after is you walking and talking and knowing me. And in that, having your doubts and your questions and your past disappointments done away with. And so when Jesus encounters people, he pursues, he is not after these half-baked professions of faith. What he is inviting people into is a long-term, lifelong encountering of him where we walk into relationship with him. And this is what Jesus invites Nathaniel into. This is verse 51, our last point this morning. John, verse 50 and 51, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, you're following me because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? His sister's saying, oh, you saw a cool miracle. You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What a bizarre way to invite someone into relationship. What is Jesus talking about here? I want to give you two ways in which Jesus is actually now confronting the cynicism of Nathaniel. Here's the first way. Jesus confronts his cynicism by declaring himself to be the ultimate arbiter of what is true in the world. There is an inherent pride. The cynic believes he has the right perspective and he has the perfect vantage point in which he can look upon people and life in the world and see through all the motivations and see what is true. He kind of looks at a sideways glances and goes, I, I see through all the garbage here. The pride of cynicism is that it actually it claims to have a knowledge that is omniscient and infallible. And Jesus shows up and he says to Nathaniel, he says, actually, I'm not looking for you to affirm me. I'm telling you what is true. Let's be clear here, big fella. I'm the one in charge. It's my voice that matters. You're just like, where does he say that? It's actually right where it begins. Jesus, throughout his ministry, when he's about to say something rather profound, will begin it by saying, truly, truly. Or in the, in the Aramaic, or it's amen, amen, in the Greek, excuse me. Amen and amen. Now, we usually think of amen as a word in which we would end our prayers with. Thank you, Lord, for this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And what are we saying when we say Amen. We are saying that this idea, that what we are asking for, we are affirming that this request is worthy of acceptance. That what has just been prayed for is a good thing for God to affirm. For example, in, in Psalm 41, verse 3, the psalmist says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. In other words, affirm that he is from everlasting to everlasting. But that's at the end of the phrase. Jesus is saying amen, amen at the beginning of what he says. So what is Jesus doing? Is he is using the expression to declare this. He's saying what I'm about to say is not up for your acceptance. I'm declaring before the words even come out of my mouth that this is worthy of full acceptance. And what I'm about to say to you is true. Jesus is saying to follow him 
Not simply because he meets your needs or impresses you in some way, because what, but because what he says is true. And that he is the ultimate arbiter of what is true, not you. Jesus is a gentle, kind, joyous person, but he is profoundly serious about this. That he looks at the cynic and says, you seem to think that you know how the world works. Well, let me tell you how the world actually works. I'm the one who gets to speak in this. Take my words to heart, not your own. Here's the second thing Jesus says to the cynic. Jesus silences the cynicism of Nathaniel by looking, calling Nathaniel to hope again. But he grounds that hope in Jesus himself. Cynicism is born of our disappointments. He says this in in the last phrase of our passage this morning. Jesus says, you'll see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That is a weird way to call someone into hope. But Nathaniel, as a good Jew, as a good Israelite, in whom there is no deceit, will know what Jesus is alluding to here. Jesus is alluding to a, a vision that Jacob has way back in Genesis chapter 28. The patriarchs of Israel are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob has the 12 sons of Israel. God actually renames Jacob to the name Israel. And in Genesis chapter 28, what we find there is Jacob who has just run away from his family. He has has, uh, deceived his father in order to steal and betray his brother and get his brother's blessing. And he has run off from his family because his brother is going to kill him. And he's out in the wilderness pretty much completely alone. His shrewdness and conniving have left him without much of a future. He has no family. He doesn't know where he's going. Hope is dead for him. And he, exhausted in running away, he finally lays his head down and uses a rock for a pillow, just kind of leans up against a rock. And when he goes to sleep, he has a vision. And in his dream, he sees heaven open, and the angels of God are going up and down the stairs. And these angels are running errands for God. There's, God is sending these angels up and down the stairs on behalf, doing, to bring blessings to Jacob. And then he sees the Lord himself at the top of the stairwell. And he says this, picking up in verse 13. Here's what God says. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised for you. God is there looking down on Jacob And in mercy, he speaks promises in the Jacob's sorry, hopeless life. And says that because I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bring hope into your life, you're going to bless the world as well. And what are the promises that God says to Jacob? All this land is going to be yours. And you're going to have an inheritance in all this land. And I'm going to go with you and I'm going to be for you. What is God doing here? This is unbelievable. He is binding himself to Jacob in these promises. He says, where you go, I will go. Where I go, I will take you. He is inviting Jacob into a relationship where he promises to do good for Jacob. And he says, these things will come to pass. I will not leave you until I have fulfilled my promise. 
By alluding to this vision, here's what Jesus is saying to Nathanael. These promises are now for you, Nathanael. These are for you. You will have God's inheritance. You will have God's presence. God is promising to bind himself to you. He is inviting you into a relationship where he promises to do good for you. But Jesus changes one thing in the image in John chapter 1. Jesus says this in the image. He says, you see the angels ascending and descending, not on a stairway, but on what? On the Son of Man, which is an Old Testament term pointing to the coming Messiah. What he's saying is this. Nathaniel is saying, Nathaniel, I am your hope. You can hope again because all the blessings that you're going to see heaven open up and the blessings of God poured down upon you with my inheritance and my presence. And those blessings are going to come upon you through me, through me. And he's saying, Nathaniel, this is different than every other religion and every other institution and every other person who will disappoint you. You see, every other religion doesn't work because it says, hey, if you want to get up to heaven and you want to get the blessings of God, you have to walk up the stairs to get there. You have to walk the steps. You have to fulfill the commands. You have to fulfill, keep these rules. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Of course, you'd be cynical about life if it's all about you keeping up, keeping all the rules perfectly. All you have to do is just be disappointed in yourself a few times and you're going to become pretty cynical. Ah, what's the point of trying to keep the rules I'm trying to get to God. I can't, keep, I can't obey him anyways. I've tried and I've tried. Or Jesus is looking at him and saying, oh, the institutions of this world have said this is how you get to God. This is how you get the blessings of God. And those institutions have failed you. Or other people have failed you. He's saying, listen, I am the one who will never fail you. I'm the one who will never fail you. Jesus is saying, I am the stairway. You want the blessings of heaven you want to have hope again? You want to be freed of a cynical view of life in which you always look at things with a, a dark cloud around it? I am the way in which you hope. Because I am the one who will promise that I'm going to bring you these blessings. It's going to be through me and what I do that those blessings are going to come to you, and I will complete my work. The cynic finds hope again, centered on no one else but Jesus and Jesus alone. This is how God, Jesus addresses the cynic. As he centers all, he says, put all your hopes in me. Put all your hopes in me. And Jesus is the stairway into heaven. He is the means there. So that his relationship with him is how the cynic gets to heaven. How the cynic begins to hope again. And the means by which Jesus becomes the stairway to heaven is this. As he comes down to earth, he gets buried into the ground through death and resurrection so that we may have life with him for all eternity. Do you see how Jesus addresses the cynic? He says, listen, you have good reason to question the world. Your experience has told you that the institutions are gonna fail you and you're gonna fail you and the people around you are gonna fail you, but you have yet to meet me. So what is he saying to Nathaniel? He's like, he I'm not after your quick emotional response. What I'm after, Nathaniel, is this. Bring your cynicism to me and come and see. Come and see. I'm promising to show you things that you can never believe. 
I'm going to show that you never thought you could see. You're going to see the blessings of God poured out upon your life. I'm promising to show you that. Will you come and see? That's my invitation to you with this series. Listen, whether you're coming to Jesus in grief or doubt or fear, let's bring out those things to the Lord and to Jesus himself and see how he engages with us. Will you come and see and come to know Jesus personally? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be a people who are willing to doubt our doubts and even to come to you in our cynicism confessing that to you. Lord, I think about um, so much on my Seeing Jesus Together journal. The first couple lines were simply, or I engage with what's going on in my heart. And morning after morning, what it is, is it displays a cynical spirit that I have to lay at your feet that I'm frustrated, I'm disappointed, that I'm skeptical as to what you're doing in my life. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that you might give us a new audacity to lay our cynicism at your feet, our hopelessness, our belief that you're actually not going to do much, and bring it to your feet and say, Jesus, will you come meet me here? And that we would be willing to look at the pages of Scripture and look at the person of Jesus and see his beauty and his care and his majesty and his glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.